0: actually recording a lovely, lovely reading with all of you people. Thank you for joining the quarantine collective, the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective, in our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We are moving into chapter four, section two, the molecular unconscious. Uh, I don't really have much else to say as an intro here. A few things I want to get housekeeping out of the way. Uh, We are uh, once again, putting out a call for people who want to volunteer to help us around the server. Mostly it's just upkeep. We have a lot more people who are being very active. So a handful more moderators, handful more people who are just uh, hanging out and doing cool stuff. All that stuff's really great. We're also trying to put together a handful of projects. So uh, head head into the uh, volunteer here. Uh, channel and just be like hey at brooks at admin at moderators i'd love to help here's what i can do and we will listen to you and probably be happy but uh with that in mind let's head into uh, the molecular unconscious and i'll go ahead and uh, kick off uh reading the chat reading the section What is the meaning of this distinction between two regions, one molecular and the other molar, one micropsychic or micrological, the other statistical and gregarious? Is this anything more than a metaphor lending the unconscious a distinction grounded in physics? When we speak of an opposition between intra atomic phenomena and the mass phenomena that operate through statistical accumulation, obeying the laws of aggregates? But in reality, the unconscious belongs to the realm of physics. The body without organs and its intensities are not metaphors, but matter itself. Nor is it our intention to revive the question of an individual psychology and a collective psychology, and of the priority of the one or the other... This distinction, as it appears in group psychology and the analysis of the ego, remains completely stymied by Oedipus. In the unconscious, there are only populations, groups, and machines. When we posit, in one case, an involuntariness... That's an interesting word, an involuntariness of the social and technical machines. In the other case, an unconscious of the desiring machines. It is a question of a necessary relationship between inextricably linked forces. Some of these are elementary forces by means of which the unconscious is produced. The others, resultants reacting on the first, statistical aggregates through which the unconscious is represented and already suffers psychic and social repression of its elementary productive forces.
1: Let's let's start in the rough so what they're trying to say right now is that there's no difference if we take um, reality as a assemblage of scales <laughs> There's no difference between the scales. They're all connected to one another. So basically, in the in a structural analysis, we tend to put the infrastructure and the superst- superstructure as something that is separated. But they're not separated because they're happening at the same time. The event
0: is always taking all those points and connecting them together. So essentially, they're saying, because how I read this last night uh, and how I've been reading this is that they're saying that... Uh, Uh, large or small, the machines operate effectively the same. That's their joke. Uh, I think it sounds jokey when they say, uh, phenomena that operate through statistical accumulation obeying the laws of physics. No, it's that in reality, actually, what we're talking about are large scale, small scale machines, whatever it may be, the machines are ultimately operating the same and their distinction between molecular and molar is something else entirely. I'm leaving that hanging out there. Just gonna leave that hanging. Also, my mic my mic working?
1: Yes, it is. Um, yeah, everything is fine. Ken just posted um, a model that he made and comparison to the last week's uh, subject. So it's it's in there, so it can help you understand like how you know the expression and the content are linked together and never separated as well.
0: Yeah, the the Hymeslev uh, glossomatics and pho- the glossemes and phonemes, right, Kent?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean the thing is to think about it in terms of language, how grammar and the the phoneme level operate simultaneously together to produce meaning. So for me, the the part I'm focusing on in this
0: uh, paragraph is where it says. Uh, basically where they say nor is our intention to revive the question of individual versus collective psychology uh this distinction as it appears in group psychology and analysis of ego remains stymied by oedipus basically they're saying that ultimately if we separate out this idea of the crowd psychology and we consider it its own thing and then the individual as its own thing as if they operate differently ultimately we actually can't apply the same rules to them uh, at a material level it, it remains stymied by uh, oedipus uh but in reality what they're talking about is in the unconscious there are only populations groups and machines uh the way that it works inside of our heads inside of the unconscious is uh Uh, the the sort of natural case of how these machines and populations work, but that also works on the group unconscious level in the same functional way. Or do I need someone to explain this to me better? Because I'm...
3: I think I'm with you. I mean, the sentence where they say, um, in the unconscious there are only population groups of machines, and they go on to say, um, when we posit in one case an involuntariness of the social and technical machines, in the other case, an unconscious desire machines is a question of necessary relationship between inextricably linked forces. So it's not about a predominance of um, of a group or, or collective um, unconscious or um, a predominance of an individual unconscious. It's more about this, this larger relationship that I think we tend to demarcate as either a group or individual um, system. Their point seems to be that that the demarcation itself is kind of artificial here. It's missing the point about the relationships that even make it possible.
2: Well, I, th- I think another important point is the um, the fact that they're talking about mass phenomena rather than set-like phenomena. And uh, in the in the Western worldview, you know, like for if you look at math, almost all of it is set-like, except for geometry and topology. And so there's this, there's this uh, distinct bias towards set-like phenomena. Most theories describe set-like phenomena. Both of their um, uh, levels, these two regimes, are both mass-like, and so they're, they're statistical in nature.
4: Yeah, I think like to hopefully not stretch that metaphor too far, like the sets are sort of the individuals and that's what they're saying isn't there in the unconscious, right? You've got the machines, which are kind of the sub or pre-individual parts, right? The like partial organs and things. Uh, and then you get all the way up to groups, but you don't have individuals in between.
2: Yeah, the uh, Simondon calls it trans-individual rather than like social because uh, because he, he thinks social is an ide- uh, idealization. And so pre-individual and trans-individual are on either side of the individual, and the whole idea of ontogenesis is to explain where the individual comes from.
0: And when you say individual, do you mean the classic sort of subject?
2: Yeah, so that's another bias in the Western worldview, is that it produces individuals and we play down the role of groups uh, in our our tradition. other societies have a much more much more of an emphasis on group, uh, say Japanese society, for instance, much more emphasis on group dynamics.
1: Yeah, so they're, what they're offering is another form of ontology, differing from the naturalistic ontology of the West. It's a, an ontology that starts with the collective and not with the individual. And, you know, taking from Simondon, Uh, I simondon in French. Um, the idea of the individual is always metastable, so it's always changing in regard to its ecology, you know. So the subject is never static, it's always something that is dynamic, ongoing, connecting, disconnecting. So, you know, this form of ontology makes it that to start from the individual or uh, regarding the individual as the real uh, is an error because the multiple is the real, and the illusion is the individual.
0: I think I get that. So the, the sentence they say in here, where uh, when we posit in one case an involuntariness of the social and technical machines, in the other case an unconscious of the desiring machines, it is a question of necessary relationship between inextricably linked forces. Uh, they're essentially equating the idea of how social and technical machines have a inevitability of how people participate in them because of the inextricably linked forces and on the other side the unconscious operas, operates the same way effectively with desiring machines which also basically operate in these linked forces
3: yeah and if, if i understand correctly they're they're not trying to say it's like a social group thing where we can just kind of like so like we've talked about the what they're saying in terms of the individual in terms of like the collective where they say, um, uh, nor is it our intention to revive the question of individual psychology and a collective psychology and of the priority of the one or the other. So really what I get out of that too is they're not looking to lay out like group psychologies and prioritize that. I I think what they're getting at um, to kind of to to tack on to those points that you and um, uh, Roger made is where they say, in the unconscious, there are only population groups and machines, and those are all interrelated. It's not a question of a, of, of a group or groups or of an individual or individuals. It's a question of the relationships that are um, that are making the connections and the breaks.
0: All right, I think I get that. Any other questions before we move on? But how can we speak of machines in this microphysical or micropsychic region there where there is desire? That is to say, not only its functioning, but formation and auto production. A machine works according to the previous intercommunications of its structure and the positioning of its parts, but does not set itself into place any more than it forms or reproduces itself. This is even the point around which the usual polemic between vitalism and mechanism revolves. The machine's ability to account for the workings of the organism, but its fundamental inability to account for its formations. From machines, mechanism abstracts a structural unity in terms of which it explains the functioning of the organism. Vitalism invokes an individual and specific unity of the living, which every machine presupposes insofar as it is subordinate to organic continuance, and insofar as it extends the latter's autonomous formations from the outside but it should be noted that in one way or another, the machine and desire thus remain in an extrinsic relationship, either because desire appears as an effect determined by a system of mechanical causes, or because the machine is itself a system of means in terms of the aims of desire. The link between the two remains secondary and indirect, both in the new means appropriated by desire and in the derived desires produced by the machines. Roger, since we have you here, I do want to ask about uh, that first sentence, the wording. If you happen to have a translation, Lou, maybe you too. The the, the term auto production is an awkward word in English and I don't really know what they mean by it. What is the sort of text around that?
1: Uh, let me find it. I have the text open. Just let me find it because I was not following
0: uh, in French, but uh, I'll come back to you in like five minutes. It's, it's just the first sentence of the second paragraph
2: there. So, so autoproduction is um, called autopoesis, and Maturana and Varela came up with a theory of autopoesis, which was kind of a, like an existential biology that focused on the organism uh, rather than the species. So,
0: my question would be then, um, obviously they're talking about where desire functions, it's formed, but autoproduction as a concept what does that mean in a contrast to functioning and formation? What is the third sort of pillar they're talking about there then?
2: Well, auto-production is something that produces itself. And what uh and Varela said was that if something's going to produce itself, then the cognition has to be uh, fused in with the, uh, you know, the, the plan has to be internalized. <laughs> And so, uh, and and there's another term uh, related to this called auto, autogenesis, so that that kind of like explaining how an autopoetic system can bootstrap itself.
5: Yeah, n- uh, not only that, but uh, in some sort of sense, uh, this uh, notion of uh, autopoiesis uh, or autoproduction fo- uh, follows the notion of uh, avian shredding us, Um neck entropy like the negative entropy because uh, when a system is auto producing itself it, it upholds its own complexity in relation to uh, its uh, environment so it's not only about the physical parts that are always uh, reproduced in itself but it's more of a, a functional and a an complexity uh, a view on the complexity of a system that is always uh, upholding uh, its own inner mechanisms and tries to, to balance it out with uh, the surroundings.
4: Yeah, and I just say that in, in contrast with the formation, that means how something is taking shape, but not really like how it itself comes to be, which is what other productions getting at.
0: Well, when they contrast uh, a little bit later, the idea of uh, machinic versus vital- vitalism, uh, mechanism versus vitalism, I think is what they say um, vitalism conceptually, they say it invokes an individual and specific unity of the living, which every machine presupposes uh, it should be noted in one way or another, the machine and the desire thus remain in an extrinsic relationship, either because desire appears as an effect determined by a system of mechanical causes or because the machine is itself a system of means in terms of the aims of desire. Uh, as a way of looking at vitalism, I'm, I'm kind of not seeing what their critique is. I feel like I'm on the verge of it though, (laughs) that vitalism is a, the core idea that living things are inherently built different than non-living things. That there's something, some special spark or something like that. Is that a short version of it?
5: Kind of. And it means uh, some sort of an uh, vital energy within each uh, living system, like there's an, an an plan implanted to it in uh, Aristotelian sense, or um, like there's a force that is um, creating this organism after a plan, or after a soul, or after a specific will, and it's in contrast to mechanistic views. And I guess they both try. Uh, uh, the Lesson Guattari, try to uh, contrast their notion um, to uh, against mechanism and vitalism because vitalism evokes some sense of an individual that is already producing itself uh, and that is uh, in a hierarchy above the... Um, production forces of matter and is controlling this and in mechanism uh, there is no subject and there's only uh, outside forces uh, that are arranging elements and they are against both of these notions as i understood it
0: and i i won't say it correctly but uh, Alain vital is absolutely bergson's big one of his big things uh so the the idea of this and he, he had a specific sort of version of it that I know Deleuze took and ran with. Again, I don't have enough of a background in a lot of what he's talking about, Bergson, when he talked about this vital force that makes things live and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it definitely comes from Bergson, at least on that side of things. Might hmm. be a thing we save for tomorrow. Any other comments before we move on to the next paragraph? Jack?
3: Yeah, I think we can kind of tease some of it out by looking at where they write... So, looking at like the polemic between vitalism and, and mechanism, right? Like this point where the two um, sort of criticize each other. So, uh, mechanism abstracts a structural unity in terms of which it explains the function of the organism. Right? So, through a structural unity, we can explain how organisms are functioning. So, this is important for like what they're talking about in terms of structure and function. And vitalism, they write, invokes an individual and specific unity of the living, which every machine presupposes insofar as it is subordinate to organic continuance and insofar as it extends the latter's autonomous formations on the outside. So it's some of the key themes we're seeing here is like, how do these things relate, um, right? So like with structural unity, they're gesturing toward like a, a sort of collectivity and a sort of organizing factor of that. But with the vitalism, they're also looking at, um, well, with, with both the mechanism and the vitalism, they're also looking at how these individual parts um, kind of animate, right? So, like, I, I think part of what they're getting at is, like, why is it that when desire flows through things, they this desiring um, production, right, and the, the question of production itself, or rather the force of production itself takes place?
0: So, yeah. Um... If I'm remembering Bergsonism, uh, Deleuze's book on Bergson at all correctly, kind of when when Deleuze was talking about this, he changed. Uh, Bergson's original sort of mentality around the whole thing was that life has this uh, special vitality that is, for lack of a better word, I will just call it spirit. Um, and I know that's a loaded term in philosophical circles, but it's kind of the spark that life has uh, that had definitely wasn't material and Deleuze didn't do well with things that weren't material. So he basically pulled it back and he said, uh, instead that uh, there actually is a material reality to vitalism and that it's a thing that, that by, by being alive, that sort of presupposes that you have this sort of uh, thing inside of you. And I'm from reading this paragraph and the previous one, it feels like what he's referring to is kind of a machinic spark that is created by the machines that are necessary inside of living things. It's sort of a, uh, the, that thing that he's talking about when he says, uh, uh, because desire appears as an effect determined by a system of mechanical causes or because the machine itself is a system of means in terms of aims of desire that, desire that flow that is coming from the living things is very much sort of how he talked about what Bergson was sort of speaking of if I remember my Bergsonism right which I'm not sure I do um so it was a but it was definitely trying to make more a materialist version of Bergson's sort of uh, a little bit more wild ideas of that spark
3: yeah if I if I understand this correctly like Desiring production is flowing in relation to things that's why i think they're calling it like an extrinsic or an extrinsic relationship such that 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 flow is right so it's not just moving in, in channels with these things it's affecting them and then that's kind of how i think like what you're calling the machine that spark kind of uh not only ignites but kind of um if, if I understand what we're calling auto production correctly, how that kind of auto production kicks off.
0: Um, I'll continue to the next paragraph. A profound text by Samuel Butler, The Book of the Machines, nevertheless allows us to go beyond these points of view. It is true that this text seems at first merely to contrast the two common arguments one according to which the organisms are, for the moment, only more perfect machines. Whether those things which we deem most purely spiritual are anything but disturbances of equilibrium in an infinite series of levers, beginning with those levers that are too small for microscopic detection... The other, according to which machines, are never more than extensions of the organism. The lower animals keep all their limbs at home in their bodies, but many of man's are loose and lie about detached, now here and now there, in various parts of the world. But there is a Butlerian manner for carrying each of the arguments to an extreme point where it can no longer be opposed to the other, a point of non-difference or dispersion. For one thing, Butler is not content to say that machines extend the organism, but asserts they are really limbs and organs lying on the body without organs of a society which men will appropriate according to their power and their wealth, and whose poverty deprives them as if they were mutilated organisms. For another... He is not content to say that organisms are machines, but asserts that they contain such an abundance of parts that they must be compared to very different parts of distinct machines, each relating to the others, engineered in combination with the others. But just mentioning, Doug, uh, you might want to turn your mic sensitivity down, hearing you breathe. Um, so, to is anyone familiar with Samuel Butler? I'm going to guess Kent is, and just. Throwing that out there, but is anyone is anyone familiar <laughs> familiar? uh No, I'm not. Oh, Kent, you just—I mean, come on, man. <laughs> so Samuel
1: Butler is completely unknown, Ben. <laughs>
0: um, I, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with Butler. Uh, oh, okay, he was an English poet
5: in the 17th century. Uh oh, was, no, there are two Samuel lot. Butlers. <laughs> There's oh. an English uh, poet in the 17th century and Samuel Butler, a novelist in the
0: 19th century. Oh, yeah, Samuel,
2: Samuel Butler wrote Erwan.
0: Oh, okay. no so he's a straight poet. He's a straight poet then.
2: No, he's the novelist.
3: Yeah, this would say Prose.
2: But I I just like to comment on one thing. Uh I mean, I think we need to read the next paragraph to see where he's going here, but the um but the but the idea is it, he says a butlerian manner for carrying each of the arguments to an extreme point where it can where it can no longer uh be opposed to the other, the point of non-difference or dispersion. Well, that that's um uh, you know they're attributing to Butler uh what Deleuze does in difference and repetition, which is to find the internal representation of the trans transcendental and then push it to its limit so he's kind of projecting his own method on Butler.
0: I I do like the sentence he says right after that. um, Butler is not content to say that machines extend the organism, but asserts they are really limbs and organs lying on the body without organs of a society which men will appropriate according to their power and wealth and whose poverty deprives them as if they were mutilated organisms. Uh, It's a really cool fucking sentence. (laughs) The idea that basically we're just part of continuous machines and uh, they are as attached to us as anything else. It's a really cool little sentiment. I think I'm going to have to read through Book of the Machines. Uh, Thanks for that link. uh, We have a link in there, uh, the chat, for anyone who wants to dive in a little bit deeper to Butler. Any comments further on this paragraph? Because I think we're going to have to... Put a pen in it, read the book of the machines, and come back to it and review tomorrow. Is going to be my guess, unless anyone wants to dive in and give it a shot.
3: Lou, did you want to say anything about the um, the passage you uh, posted?
6: Um, I've just looked up like um, in the Cambridge Companion to the Lewis. Um, Eugene Holland has a chapter on. Um, um on Deleuze and psychoanalysis where he talks about um Bergson and the relationship of Bergson to Deleuze's critique of psychoanalysis and I've just um uh, control f for um Elan Vital and found this passage where they basically say that um If we think about uh, desiring production as libido and of social production as labor power, we can understand them both as expressions of a single energy source. As a second approximation, we can consider to be actually akin to and conceptually derived from Nietzschean will to power and Bergsonian élan Vital. So um, understanding the élan Vital in relation to the will to power might be useful for people who know Nietzsche,
2: which is not me. That's interesting, because I've never heard those two things juxtaposed before.
6: Yeah, but I think, actually, um, I think Bergson didn't like Nietzsche, um, but there are some parallels that even I, who is very ignorant of Nietzsche beyond uh, the genealogy of morals, could find. We'll talk about this in the Bergson group, <laughs> I think. Oh, nice.
0: <laughs> I had please let me know when when you do if it's this week, because it this is I've actually never heard anyone put and Bergson in the same sentence, let alone have actually a thought that I think works really nicely as a. That's really interesting. I also want to
6: some some precursory ideas to conceptions of genealogy in Bergson. And I think um, specifically um, Nietzsche's uh, conception of forgetfulness in, 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 in the genealogy can be related to a Bergsonian understanding of memory but that will require some more reading on my part to actually make that point.
0: Um, I do want to take uh, one line they have in here is where they talk about the, the, the line I got attached to. Uh, machines extend the organism, but ultimately they're really limbs. Uh, I'm going to read from the link, uh, but, Finish the what you sent over, Kent, and there's one line I want to make sure I read a little mini paragraph. Um, it's basically him uh, belying the way society is changing in the late 1800s as more things become mechanized. And his argument is not so much that he's scared of any machine that exists now, but he's like, think about this process. Think about where we're heading. And he says, As yet the machines receive their impressions through the agency of man's senses. One traveling machine calls to another in a shrill accent of alarm, and the other instantly retires. But it is through the ears of the driver that the voice of the one has acted upon the other. Had there been no driver, the collie would have been deaf to the caller. There was a time when it must have seemed highly improbable that machines should learn to make their wants known by sound, even through the ears of man. May we not conceive, then, that a day will come when those ears are no longer needed. Hearing will be done by the delicacy of the machine's own construction, when its language shall have been developed from the cry of animals to a speech as intricate as our own. Uh, the idea of how the machines work inside of this system. Just, I really like that. And Yeah, it's prose, but that's thats poetry. That's good shit right there. Any other comments on this before I move on? All right. What is essential is this double movement whereby Butler drives both arguments beyond their very limits. He shatters the vitalist argument by calling in question the specific or personal unity of the organism and the machinist argument even more decisively by calling in question the structural unity of the machine. It is said that machines do not reproduce themselves or that they only reproduce themselves through the intermediary of man. But does anyone say that the red clover has no reproductive system because the bumblebee and the bumblebee only must aid and abet it before it can reproduce? No one. The bumblebee is part of the reproductive system of the clover. Each one of ourselves has sprung from minute animalcules whose entity was entirely distinct from our own. These creatures are part of our reproductive system. Then why not we part of that of machines? We are misled by considering any complicated machine as a single thing. In truth, it is a city or a society, each member of which was bred truly after its kind. We see a machine as a whole. We call it a name and individualize it. We look at our own limbs. We know the combination forms an individual which springs from a single center of reproductive action. We therefore assume that there can be no reproductive action which does not arise from a single center. But this assumption is unscientific, and the bare fact that no vapor engine was ever made entirely by another, or two others, of its own kind is not sufficient to warrant us in saying that vapor engines have no reproductive system. The truth is that each part of every vapor engine is bred by its own special breeders, whose function is to breed that part and that only, while the combination of the parts into the whole forms another department of the mechanical reproductive system. In passing, Butler encounters the phenomenon of surplus value of code when a part of the machine captures within its own code a code fragment of another machine and thus owes its reproduction to a part of another machine, the red clover and the bumblebee, the orchid and the male wasp that it attracts and intercepts by carrying on its flower the image and the odor of the female wasp. So if we want to put it into another language,
1: it's the relation that is... that The relation precedes the terms. So... The, the every part of a machine is always produced by something else and then the machine as you know um, a whole is not something that is existing prior to the addition of all those parts entering in relation with one another so there's always a synthesis at play there
3: yeah and in that way I think that's kind of how he's shattering the arguments right is that the structuralist unity doesn't it's kind of like you're saying, it doesn't come before the relationships, right? Um, and in the same way, the like, um, for the, the sake of the vitality and that, that animation um, runs into a sim- similar um, sort of uh, critique.
2: Well, one thing I think is interesting here is that they finally said what the surplus value of code really means. Where it says a part of the machine captures within its code a code fragment of another machine. Well, I just think we've heard surplus value of code a lot, but it was always unclear exactly what that meant. I thought, and uh, and I think here they're making it clear what it means.
0: So I mean, the example they give of a surplus value is the uh, the male wasp that it attracts uh, that the orchid has. On it, the image and the odor of the female wasp, that image and odor is the surplus code that it carries.
2: Right, but, but the thing is that you can see this in software because there's this thing called bootstrapping. So uh, if you've got a software language, usually it's written in another language, but the ideal is to have it written in itself. But how do you get it written in itself when the language has no implementation? Well, the way you do that is that you bootstrap that code and you, uh, you, you get some small kernel of that code written in operators from another language, and then you get that little part running. And then once you have that little part running, you, you keep adding parts of the code written in its own language, and you expand out from there until the, the, that language is implemented in itself. And so that that is exactly what they're saying here. It says says so well a machine captures within its own code a code fragment of another machine. So that's that's what's called bootstrapping in software.
1: I'm gonna ask a really stupid question so it can clarify for other people who hey, have do hey, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but like okay, some of us have been brought up into Marxist thinking. So you know when we talk about the surplus value of something, surplus value is the difference between the amount uh, that is uh, that is made through the sale of a product and the uh, the amount um, that it costs the owner to to produce uh, this product. So what I'm saying what I'm saying here is so actually the plus value of an entity or you know uh, a machine. Is being coded by another one? It's it's really difficult for me to move from one form of thinking to this one.
2: Well, it's it it's kind of like uh how how do you get an emergent thing to occur? We want a new language to exist. How do we get that language to exist written in itself? So hmm. the, way we, the way we do it is we import a little bit of code from a language that's already implemented, and then we work out from there implementing each part of it in this core that comes from the other language until the whole thing is implemented in itself and then what they do and then that 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 produces something which is very inefficient then you go through and you start optimizing it on the assembly language level
1: Okay, but if, if, we, if we take this ontology as an ontology of production, because that's what the Deleuze and Gauthier are doing, um, so the plus value or the surplus value is something that is produced, it's, it's a part of the production. So does that mean that the part of this production that is still abstract into the first machine is integrated into the codification of a second, saying that the second one plays into the production of the surplus value of the first machine? So basically the assemblage of both is producing a surplus. Is that what they're trying to say there?
2: Well, it I, seems so. It, it seems so. It seems like it, it seems what they're so, trying to say is that uh, you know where surplus value is usually just an excess, but here the excess is producing something emergent. Okay. And, okay. I, I think that's the difference, which is interesting. I mean, I I never really understood what they were talking about until we got to this line.
1: Yeah, because in economic uh, language, the plus value is uh, something that you can just take away. You know, it's just a surplus. It's something external to the machine. But what they're saying here, it's internal to the reproduction factor of this machine, but also it's it's internal to the
0: relationships to other machines. That's, that's how I read it, that there is a... Uh, let's take the... The, the car-producing machine, which is a dude in a factory in a factory and the capitalist who puts money in to make it run. At some point, uh, he's going to have money spit out of that machine that is the excess value, right, that has been produced. Uh, that is in this case part of another meta machine which is the larger sort of car company machine which allows things to be created and replicated in a larger situation so we just it's a they talk a little bit earlier about where the problem being that we basically see a complex machine as being unto itself instead of part of larger machines or sort of hyper connected into another larger machine setup and i think what I'm reading when I hear about uh, this surplus value of code when per machine captures within its own code a code fragment of another machine, uh, that excess capital that would be left over is actually that very thing right there. That's the code fragment of another machine. But it's a larger machine that has that smaller machine's code fragment now as part of it that allows reproduction.
2: What's interesting about this is that it helps us understand what the surplus value of flow might be. Because if you, if you just read it and say, uh, a part of a machine captures within its own flow the flow of a fragment of another machine. So if you substitute flow for code, then it's basically saying that when you have flows within flows, that's the surplus value of flows. And that's yeah. differentiation
5: and that no uh, machine is self-contained it's always depending on other machines like uh the flower and the bee like there's the the all this coding in the flower uh, with all the um reproductive organs the female parts the male parts the production of pollen Uh, but it needs this code this this tendency of a bee to fly to uh a sweet substance to to uh inherent part of this code to to uh, develop its own reproductive system so so these two codes become intertwined and and uh, are independent Uh, yeah Uh, not independent they are depending on each other and are intertwined so interdependent
0: interdependent interdependent. thanks Uh, I can be useful for some things. Uh, any other comments on this paragraph before we move on? Because I think it's we're about to see more about the desire and how it flows in this. I want to make sure we get to it. To it.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, Doug just said uh, that's differentiation. And I think that we should always uh, keep this in mind because that's what they're describing right now. Differentiation is uh, uh, not reproduction of the same, but uh,
0: reproduction in coupling. It's, it's not replication, it's reproduction. There's a difference. Uh, to continue, at this point of dispersion of the two arguments, it becomes immaterial whether one says that machines are organs or organs, machines. The two definitions are exact equivalents. Man is a ant mammal, or as an amphibian Aphidian parasite of machines whatever that's terrible that's terrible writing the two definitions are exact equivalents man as a vertebromechanic animal mammal or as an aphidian parasite of machines what is essential is not the in the passage to infinity itself the infinity composed of machine parts or the temporal infinity of animal cubicles but rather in what this passage blossoms into Once the structural unity of the machine has been undone, once the personal and specific unity of the living has been laid to rest, a direct link is perceived between the machine and desire. The machine passes to the heart of desire, the machine is desiring, and desire machined. Desire is not in the subject, but the machine in desire, with the residual subject off to the side, alongside the machine, around the entire periphery a parasite of machines, an accessory of vertebral machinate desire. In a word, the real difference is not between the living and the machine, vitalism and mechanism, but between the two states of the machine that are two states of the living as well. The machine taken in its structural unity, the living taken in its specific and even personal unity, are mass phenomena or molar aggregates. For this reason, each points to the extrinsic existence of the other, and even if they are differentiated and mutually opposed, it is merely as two paths in the same statistical direction. But in the other, more profound or intrinsic direction of multiplicities, there is interpenetration, direct communication between the molecular phenomena and the singularities of the living. That is to say, between the small machines scattered in every machine, and the small formations dispersed in every organism a domain of non-difference between the micro physical and the biological there being as many living beings in the machine as there are machines in the living why speak of machines in this domain when there would seem to be none strictly speaking no structural unity nor any preformed mechanical interconnections But there is the possibility of formation of such machines in indefinitely superimposed relays, in working cycles that mesh with each other, which once assembled will obey the laws of thermodynamics, but which, in the process of assembly, do not depend on these laws, since the chain of assembly begins in the domain where, by definition, there are, as yet, no statistical laws. At this level, functioning and formation are still confounded, as in the molecule. And starting from this level, two diverging paths open up of which one will lead to the more and or less regular accumulations of individuals, the other to the perfectings of the individual organization whose simplest schema is the formation of a pipe. And there's a footnote which uh, I can read, but I'm going to take a break and open up to everyone this. Jesus, it's a long paragraph.
6: So that's the point where Doug explains us uh, thermodynamics, I think. <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: uh, so, uh, so there, and there's a state where you know we can escape thermodynamics, which is really puzzling to me.
4: Yeah, I mean, so like thermodynamics is sort of just what are the the universal tendencies of matter, uh, but at the microphysical level, you've got you know atoms and particles that are uh, you know being quantum mechanics, where you can only it's non deterministic, you can only. Uh, predict the wave function, which is sort of like intensity of where you might expect to find it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, when you start uh, averaging things, there's this uh, theorem called Ehrenfest's theorem. I'll drop a link in the chat uh, that says basically when you average things you from quantum mechanics you get the laws of classical mechanics back.
0: If I'm wrong, and please tell me if I'm wrong, once you get down to the quantum level, it actually becomes almost pure statistical.
4: It Yeah, it, it is. like So you can't say this atom is definitely going to follow this path. Uh, you can only say it's got probabilities for different uh, paths. But they're, then they're saying that this is at the microphysical level, this is where the formation is occurring, right? It's, you know atoms combining and things like that.
3: Yeah, if if I'm understanding um, it seems to me what they're getting at is that um, thermodynamics does not explain nor govern necessarily how the assemblages happen but it does help us understand and it provides a kind of unification of what those assemblages are going to do um, kind of with these relationships having
2: been established. Uh, In quantum mechanics, there's superposition and entanglement. Um, Entanglement is kind of like a mixture at a distance of different things that seem to be discrete to us. And superposition is where you're in the same, uh, two different states at the same time.
4: Yeah, entanglement is like, well, yeah, so entanglement is sort of um, when you've got like Two different things. They can have a uh, combined state in which, like, neither one's individual properties are well defined. You can only talk about like their properties relative to each other, but not like what either one of them is necessarily doing. And uh, and that is you that 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 works because of quantum superposition, because you can have. Uh, Different combinations of things that uh, you know um, you would just be able to get with a classical picture of one or the other there by itself.
0: So I'm I'm gonna ask. Uh, I I wonder if their uh, metaphor, allegory, whatever you want to use here, does stop at the molecule level, and after that, they. I know that at this time it was really fun to talk about for philosophers talk about all the things that they could think of when it came to quantum mechanics and all that fun stuff. But when they talk about, uh, this point of the molecular where, uh, and they, they talk about it as if you, you can't really have machines at this point in the way that we traditionally know them. Um, because this is kind of the, the pure level that things are just what they are. The domain of non-difference between microphysical and biological, um, When there was why speak of machines in this domain when there seemed to be none, no structural unity or any preformed mechanical interaction interconnections that they they go into the actually there are at some level when these things, you know, the working cycles that mesh with each other, the superimposed relays that embrace the laws of thermodynamics at the molecular level. uh, but which in the process of assembly do not depend on these laws, since the chain of assembly begins in the domain where by definition there are no statistical laws. when you've just got uh, a, a molecule of carbon monoxide, that's not so much about statistics at that point. You just have a molecule of that. Uh, one thing uh,
5: wasn't uh, there mentioned at one point in our last uh, discussions that the French term machine, it's not like in English or in German that it is a static thing, but this uh, machine in French can also um, uh, be interpreted as a some sort of process in a uh, more or less uh, fluent manner and not in a, a unitary st- uh, static manner.
0: Yeah, I think uh, they, they began to use, not use the term machine, they later on started using the term uh uh oh, what is it uh starts with an a um, um assemblage? Assemb- assemblage. assemblage thank you thank yes.
1: you uh because you know in french uh, i think maybe maybe it changed you know it's been it's been a while but the way we use machine in french is basically the same thing the same way we use it in english oh. But I want to hammer this nail again, because that's all I do in these talks. When they talk about uh, compenetration, compenetration in French, which is, I think, in English, interpenetration. This is, really, this is something we need to keep in mind, because it's not interrelation between two entities. It's the entities that are penetrating one another without, you know, the phallic sense that, you know, you probably are thinking of, but it's the penetration of the flux that goes through the entities that are in contact and in relation. So, you know, we don't, we're not stuck with the idea of the subject and we're not stuck with the unity of each entity because they are being decomposed and recomposed through uh, their relation.
4: Yeah, and I was going to add that I think another reason they kind of stop at the molecular because they don't want to go down to like an individual atom, right? It's not about a difference between an individual and a collective. Uh, you know, I mean, it turns out that even when you get down to the level of an atom, there are, you know, uh, the the subatomic realm of quarks that are sort of interpenetrating each other. Uh, but you know, I think.
1: Yeah, uh, and and the, yeah, about. and you're right. And the ontological model of those in Guattari like starts with the molecular. So it starts there.
0: There's no before that. One of the questions we had uh, early on about this, someone wanted to make sure that we really talked about uh, that last sentence. Uh, The other two perfectings of the individual organization whose simplest schema is the formation of a pipe. Uh, What is meant by that? I interpret that as meaning uh, uh, literally just essentially a hose that things fly through. Uh, that doesn't actually impede or deal with what the the flows that are going through it it just allows total pass through the simplest schema
3: yeah i mean i take it kind of like so, like with structural unity and all of that like the mechanism the mechanistic side like we're trying to understand these formations kind of already where they're at right like we kind of need them to be there for a structural unity to to um to be held but conversely like the way a pipe comes into being um and the way this all happens which is kind of what they're i think they're getting at with the vitalism is kind of a way of it at first at looking at this and then obviously they're they're going somewhere else with um kind of in response but at least that there's this sort of like um i'm gonna use the word and then qualify there's this sort of ind- individualistic um, Way that all this comes together just to produce the very pipe that that the structural unity is going to take into account. But um, the reason I say I'm going to qualify individualistic is like it, it's a it's an occurrence that's happening right through the functions that makes this pipe um, form, and with that formation, it can then be um, it can sort of be held by the structural unity, and that that's sort of. Um, that sort of confluence can be shared, like Roger was saying with like the inner penetration allows for that larger um, uh, level.
0: Well actually on that too, to read from uh, the footnote that come, follows it, uh, classical physics only concerns itself with mass phenomena. In contrast, microphysics naturally leads to biology. Starting from the individual phenomena of the atom, one can in fact go in two directions. Their statistical accumulation leads to the laws of common physics. But as these individual phenomena become complicated through systemic interactions... All the while keeping their individuality at the core of the molecule, then at the core of the macromolecule, then of the virus, then of the one-celled organism, by subordinating the mass phenomena, one is led all the way to the organism that, no matter how large, remains, in this sense, microscopic. Uh, which I kind of like the idea of the macro and micromolar molecular being uh, deeply interdependent. Any last comments before I move on to the next paragraph? I want to try to keep pace. We are not doing a good pace through this so far. (laughs) All right. The real difference is therefore between on the one hand, the molar machines, whether social, technical, or organic, and on the other, the desiring machines, which are of a molecular order. Desiring machines are the following formative machines whose misfirings are functional and whose functioning is discernible from their formation, chronogenous machines engaged in their own assembly, montage, operating by non-localizable intercommunications and dispersed localizations, bringing into play processes of temporalization, fragmented formations and attached parts with a surplus value of code and where the whole is itself produced alongside the parts as a part as a part apart, or, as Butler would say, in another department, that fits the whole over the other parts. Machines in the strict sense, because they proceed by breaks and flows, associated waves and particles, associative flows and partial objects, inducing, always at a distance, transverse connections, inclusive disjunctions, and polyvocal conjunctions, thereby producing selections, detachments, and remainders. With the transference of individuality, in a generalized a schizogenesis whose elements are the skizes flows uh, i should just continue into the next paragraph but i'm going to stop and see if anyone has notes before i do because the next paragraph begins with subsequently which tends to mean i should just keep going but please
2: well it, this remind this differentiation the for, formative machines and chronogenous machines reminds me of the cinema series where the first one is about uh, uh, let's see. What is it? Um, the movement picture? Yeah. The what? What's that called? The um, in there? Movement, movement image. image. Movement image. Yeah. And the and the time image. I just
3: wanted to point to the um, where they say whose very misfirings are functional, like to that point too. There's a point of contingency to be kind of um reiterated here, right? Like with the wasp and the orchid. Like, it's not deterministic i think in the sense that like the wasp must um leave that odor and all that behind it happens to take place right and that's in part due to like the the way everything connects but you know were the wasp to to do that on a different flower we wouldn't say the wasp is dysfunctional would we um because a new assemblage is starting to take place or um a new desiring machine if you like
1: yeah, I wanted to comment on it. I think you're right. I wanted to comment on the misfirings are functional. It's the same thing as a like a car motor. It's the generation between the heat and the combustible that actually creates energy. So the misfiring are the functions.
3: Yeah, and to that point, right, like the engine doesn't work without the sputtering and all that. The engine's still working even when it's um, misfiring.
1: So the functional would be an external relay relation between the terms.
2: I I just like to mention that in uh Lacan his uh, seminar 11 he he defines uh desire as a montage. So this this montage idea uh goes back to Lacan.
6: Okay, so I have a very basic vocabulary
2: question I think
6: because I don't think we have seen um this contraction, skizzes flows. Um, how do you interpret the, the, that?
3: I was thinking of Schiss's flows as like break flows.
4: Yeah, I interpret in sort of their, uh, you know, the Delusian sense of becoming where things are kind of going in both directions at once, so you've got this sort of simultaneity of the break and the flow. knotted together, I'd say.
0: Whereas I don't understand the sentence and I, I'm hoping to, I'm, I think it's a thing they're gonna go over a lot more and I'm hoping to gain a better understanding over time because that's, every time they use this term flows or schizogenesis, uh, which they've started to use more and more, I genuinely don't have a clue, literally what they're referencing. Like I get, well, like I get uh, emotionally, but not really.
2: Well, I, I'm not sure of this, but what it calls to mind is microgenesis. You know, microgenesis is the idea that the um, when you're producing a gestalt in the production process, it goes through formations, protoformations that are very different from the final gestalt that's produced. And so, I think I, th- I think that uh, the schiz's flows is like that. It's a, it's a flow of very different things that are produced very different products or proto-products that are produced along the way to getting to a final product. Hmm.
1: And I'll fucking hammer the same nail again. It's to start with the relationship. Uh, schizogenesis is the genesis by the connection. So everything is produced by connections. So the, the flux kisses or uh, the fluches, I don't know how they say this in French either. So all the elements of um, a schizogenesis would be uh, interconnected flux, if we want.
3: Yeah, and to, to expand on that, if we, because this is a ridiculously long sentence, right? This is the kind of sentence that your editor normally throws out. But if we kind of back up right there, it looks to me like what they're trying to lay out is how the molecular and the molar sort of co-develop one another, and they're they're doing that with. They're expanding on form by linking that back to desiring machines and talking about how form comes with the misfirings and the firings. They're laying out how like chronogenuous machines. So we're talking about how like how the assembly um, interacts with time, right? Uh, Bringing into play processes of temporizations, fragmented formations, and detached parts, right? So there's a spatial aspect there, I think, too, but sort of like how there's how this isn't interacting with time and how time is kind of part of the assemblage itself um, at least those would be the two basic parts before they go into their first semicolon or I'm sorry their second semicolon
2: so so this is interesting this part because it says uh, you know that they because they proceed by break flows, Associated waves and particles, okay, so they're referencing quantum mechanics, and then to that they're saying associative flows and partial objects, and then inducing always at a distance transverse connections, inclusive dejunctions, and polyvocal uh, conjunctions. So those are the three uh, syntheses of the unconscious.
0: Which gives a material understanding of how the unconscious works. Once again, pushing back to that.
2: Yeah,
5: because desiring machines are formative machines. They, they take all these different parts and flows and, and put them together in this schizophrenic way, so to say, they are, uh, they are not uh, uh, direct flows in a, uh, uh, in a way of uh, a continuity there are these, these breaks that are inherent to it
3: yeah i struggle struggle but little bit but, but, but the breaks
1: oh, hold hold on. But on. The, sorry the breaks are inherent to the process is the continuity that is an image of what we see because we we make a like a mental synthesis of like what we're perceiving but what's fundamental are the breaks and not the continuity
3: yeah because they they're both like codependent, so to speak, but um, I want to say two to that point. Um, since they're talking about schizos flows, and because they they're very distinct with the inclusive disjunction, the polyvocal conjunctions, and that it sounds like two, they're talking about um, like they're talking about a, a specific assemblage, which seems to be like um, the syllog- so obviously the syllogistic uses, I think, but also the syllogistic uses in the schizophrenic. Um, in a, in a uh, continuous schizophrenic flow, which I think is how they get the schiz's schiz's flows, is like with these flows and braids, it's happening in the schizophrenic uh, distinction, not the paranoiac
0: I think. I you know, actually say, let's uh, make a note. I'm going to make a note of that, and let's discuss during the review tomorrow because we are behind. And I'd rather like it's a great chapter, but I'm not sure I want to do two to three weeks of it. So let's keep charging ahead. Um, Subsequently, rather, we should say on the other hand, when the machines become unified at a structural level of techniques and institutions that give them an existence as visible as a plate of steel, when the living tube becomes structured by the statistical unities of their persons and their species, varieties, and locales, when a machine appears as a single object and a living organism appears as a single subject when the connections become global and specific, the disjunction's exclusive and the conjunctions biunivocal, then desire does not need to project itself into these forms that have become opaque. These forms are immediately molar manifestations, statistical determinations of desire and of its own machines. They're the same machines, there's no difference in nature. Here as organic, technical or social machines apprehended in their mass phenomenon to which they become subordinated. There, as desiring machines, apprehended in their submicroscopic singularities that subordinate the mass phenomena. That is why, from the start, we have rejected the idea that desiring machines belong to the domain of dreams or the imaginary, and that they stand in for the other machines. There is only desire and environments, fields, forms of herd instinct. Stated differently, the molecular desiring machines are in themselves the investment of the large molar machines or of the configurations that the desiring machines form according to the laws of large numbers, in either or both senses of subordination, in one sense and the other of subordination. Desiring machines in one sense, but organic, technical, and social machines in the other. These are the same machines under determinate conditions. By determinate conditions, we mean those statistical forms into which the machines enter as so many stable forms, unifying, structuring, and proceeding by means of large, heavy aggregates. The selective pressures that group the parts retain some of them and exclude others, organizing the crowds. These are therefore the same machines, but not at all in the same regime, the same relationship or magnitude, or the same use of syntheses. It is only at a submicroscopic level of desire machines that there exists a functionalism, machinic arrangements, and engineering of desire. For it is only there that functioning and formation, use and assembly, product and production merge. Uh, ah, is that in everyone's everyone's version? All. Thank you, stupid fucking text. All molar functionalism is false, since the organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function, and the technical machines are not assembled in the same way they are used, but imply precisely the specific conditions that separate their own production from their distinct product. Only what is not produced in the same way it functions has a meaning, and also a purpose, an intention. The desiring machines, on the contrary, represent nothing signify nothing, mean nothing, and are exactly what one makes of them, what is made with them, what they make in themselves. I really like this paragraph. There's a lot for us to go over here. Let's try to make it um, fairly quick. Uh, And as everyone's noticing, um, there is a lot of Bergson inside of this. Uh, you did miss that, Alyosha, I apologize. Uh, we will we will talk about Bergson again tomorrow, uh, and tomorrow will be the same time we are uh, in the U.S. here. So we haven't done the uh, uh, fall s- uh, savings. So we haven't we haven't moved the clock, sadly. So soon, but um, I want to go through and the major points of this. Does anyone want to try to summarize quickly for us?
4: Well, one thing I'm getting from the end there, I think, is that uh, it seems like they're kind of proposing a theory of uh, meaning here as a uh, maybe surplus value of uh, function.
2: Well, I, I think that's like the phonemes not meaning anything. I think I think what they're saying is that just like in words, the words mean something, but the phonemes don't mean anything. I think um,
0: it, uh, How I read some of this is that they're trying to contrast a lot of desire against classic psychoanalysis when they bring up, for example, in this, they mention uh, capital I imaginary. Uh, It's not the dreams or the imaginary. That's Freud and Lacan that they're kind of taking to task there, at least. And they're saying that desiring machines, that's not where they sit. Instead, what they do is they what they produce is their desire. They create desire. They re- the machines themselves actually don't have any semiotic information. They don't already have the Oedipal formation of wanting to fuck my mother, kill my father, whatever it may be that actually, uh, they are exactly what one makes of them, what is made with them and what they make of themselves. They are, uh, doh, for lack of a better term that at some point get formed into something, but it itself, the desiring machines have no semiotic signifiers at all in themselves. And that's at the smallest levels. And so if we think about as they make their way to the molar, uh, there's no longer desiring machines at that point. There's uh, all molar functionalism is false. Uh, since organic or social machines are not formed in the same way that they function. However, in our unconscious where desire is manufactured and desiring machines exist, they are. That's what I'm how I read this, which is an interesting uh contrast between the two sides for sure
4: but don't don't they say that this is just uh you know design machines at a different level not that they're not there but that they're invested in a different way at the molar level so they're just saying there can't be a functionalism in the sense that you couldn't say that
0: design machines sort of like begin at the molar level and proceed to the molecular i i, I would say so i, I have that reverse that desire machines uh, they, they go out of their way to say that the uh, a little bit earlier, um, there is only desire in environments, fields, forms for its instincts. Stated differently, the molecular desiring machines are in themselves the investment of the large molar machines or of configurations that the desiring machines form according to the large laws of large numbers. Uh, desiring machines in one sense, but organic, technical, and social machines in the other.
3: Yeah, the sentence that sticks out to me is where they say, um. These are therefore the same machines, but not at all the same regime, the same relationships of magnitude, or the same uses of the syntheses. Right. So even though we're dealing with a, a, um, a continuity of machines, if you like, um, the contextualization or the regimes, right? So what's influencing, what's affecting it, the um, the magnitudes, and the um, the syntheses themselves, that is not consistent here.
0: What Alyosha is saying is how i reading that the functionalism here is about the process of production, and production doesn't happen at the molar level. Uh, and they say that pretty cleanly, since organic or social machines are not formed in the same way they function, uh, and technical machines are not assembled in the same way they are used, but imply precisely the specific conditions that separate their own production from their distinct product. That's how I read that, that we're talking about. Essentially, production only happening at the molecular level. Um, although the the machines still are producing things, they're still creating, they're, they're, the social machines still make things happen. It's it's not necessarily the literal desiring production that's happening at that point. I feel like we're going to rabbit hole really quick in this paragraph.
3: Yeah, because then I would have to ask you, how are they all using how do, both, how do both instances make use of syntheses? Right.
0: <laughs> well, so in that, I will continue to read the next paragraph. Desiring machines work according to regimes of syntheses that have no equivalent in the large aggregates. Jacques Monod has defined the originality of these syntheses from the standpoint of a molecular biology or a microscopic cybernetics without regard to the traditional opposition between mechanism and vitalism. Here, the fundamental traits of synthesis are the indifferent nature of the chemical signals, the indifference to the substrate, and the indirect character of the interactions. Such formulas as these are negative only in appearance and in relation to the laws of aggregates, but must be understood positively in terms of force, puissance. Between the substrate of uh, of an... uh, Allosteric. I don't even know what that word means. I'm so stupid sometimes. Uh, Allosteric enzyme and the ligands prompting or inhibiting its activity. There exists no chemically necessary relationship of structure or of reactivity. An allosteric protein should be seen as specialized product of molecular engineering, enabling an interaction, positive or negative, to come about between compounds without chemical affinity and thereby eventually subordinating any reaction to the intervention of compounds that are chemically foreign and indifferent to this reaction. The way in which allosteric interactions work hence permits a complete freedom in the choice of controls, and these controls having no chemical requirements to answer to, will be more responsive to physiological requirements and will accordingly be selected for the extent to which they confer heightened coherence and efficiency upon the cell or organism. In a word, the very gratuitousness of these systems giving molecular evolution a practically limitless field for exploration and experiment enabled it to be to elaborate the huge network of cybernetic interconnections. Uh, to read from Lou in biochemistry, allosteric regulation or control is the regulation of an enzyme by binding an effector molecule at a site other than the active site of the enzyme. Which is a whole thing. I don't understand any of that. And you know, that paragraph right over my fucking head. Uh, anyone want to try? <laughs> Quickly, ideally. Because I don't want to deep dive into how chemistry works at a molecular level for 20 minutes.
3: I mean, I like the first sentence. <laughs> right. So, design machines work according to regimes of syntheses that have no equivalent in the large aggregates.
0: Which I think was answering what you specifically were asking, which I think is a fair question, is how they how they operate. But it says specifically there's no equivalent in the large aggregates, which to me again goes back to the idea that desire uh, is created, produced, and shaped effectively only at the molecular, uh, and there's no equivalent for that in the large aggregates. Instead, those uh, operate uh, as they say um as as large it, they operate in, in group uh production a, d- a different mentality where's the word they use and social and technical machines thank you
3: yeah the reason i asked that question though is it does seem to me that as we scale up to like the social machines we're still dealing with desiring production, and we're still dealing with a regime of syntheses. But the regime of syntheses we're now dealing with as we scale up is not the regime of syntheses that we're dealing on with as we scale down, to say it kind of simply.
0: Yes, that's a really good way to put it.
2: I think we ought to read the footnote. Uh, Jack Monod, Chance and Necessity, says, with the, glo- with the globular protein we already have, at the molecular level, a veritable machine, a machine in its functional properties, but not, we now see, in its fundamental structure, where nothing but the play of blind combinations can be discerned, randomness caught on the wing, preserved and reproduced by the machine of invariance, thus converted into order, rule and necessity. <clears throat> so Jack Monod came up with a um, structural model of uh, evolution. And and basically, the way it worked was that you had layers of variance and invariance. And the, the variances were random. And so basically, he distinguished teleology from teleonomia. Tele Teleology is you know where you're going to end up. Nomi means that you're progressively going to hone in on a particular result you don't know what that is from the from the beginning but eventually you get to a particular a particular uh, result that's called teleonomi by monode.
1: Yeah, so the, the function of, uh, can I say, can I really say function? Anyway, I'll go with function, the function of the protein in that, uh, in that example is the protein has different affordances. And, you know, in relation to an environment, certain of the affordances will enable, enable other components to connect to that protein. Um, and, you know, it creates like a form of cooperation and or, or or affinity between the two components. And this is the affinity that is productive. And it's, you know, we cannot really know where it's going. And there's no teleology of the protein. It's only through the assemblage of the protein that we can know where it's going.
2: But I, I think it's interesting what they're saying here, which is that there's a, there's a, a kind of hyper efficiency hyper effectiveness that comes from the randomness itself and the free play of the uh, of, of the of the system that then becomes an invariant when it's chosen at each level
3: yeah are you talking about the sentence in a word even no, though this is not a word in a word the very graciousness of these systems giving molecular evolution a practically limitless field for exploration and experiments enabled it to elaborate the huge network of cybernetic interconnections.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So to give another type of example, you know, I'm working on disability in the city. So the city is, you know, this, this whole body of like pieces that can come together, but the possibilities within the city are structured in a way, but also, are dependent on the emergence of the connections that happen on the street level. You know, on either the the the, the person with their environment or the information field or urbanism and all of that. So, so basically what they're saying is, is the same kind of thing. There's the affordances of the environment and the people will use those affordances. And we don't know how the city will continue to structure itself. So there is a form of structure and what is considered to be randomness, it's, it's not that much randomness. It's possibilities that are offered by the prior structuration. So and but the the structure of the city is emergent rather than given into a transcendental field and printed upon reality.
3: I really like your use of the word emergent there. And if that is the case, right? So one of the implicit points from that, like a, in a conclusive way, is that if structure structure is emergent, structure does not sit above all as a regulating factor. And in the same way, structure is not um, is not immutable.
1: Exactly. But the structure can demand functions, though. And that's the thing. That's the other side of the of that coin.
4: No disagreement there. I think that helps answer the question of how you get these different regimes of the syntheses, like you've got the totally unstructured uh, molecular regime. And then as you get to larger
0: uh, scales, you get structures and different sorts of syntheses in that. Because we continue to talk about proteins and DNA and all sorts of things. How, starting from this domain of chance or of real inorganization, organization, large configurations are organized that necessar- necessarily reproduce a structure under the action of DNA and its segments, the genes, performing veritable lottery drawings, creating switching points as lines of selection or evolution. This, indeed, is what all the stages of the passage from the molecular to the molar demonstrate, such as this passage appears in the organic machines, but no less so in the social machines with other laws and other figures. In this sense, it was possible to insist on the common characteristic of human cultures and of living species as Markov chains, aleatory phenomena that are partially dependent. In the genetic code, as in the social codes, what is termed a signifying chain is more a jargon than a language, composed of non-signifying elements that have a meaning or an effect of signification only in the large aggregates that they constitute through a linked drawing of elements, a partial dependence, and a superposition of relays. It is not a matter of biologizing human history, nor of anthropologizing natural history, It is a matter of showing the common participation of the social machines and the organic machines in the desiring machines. That man's most basic stratum, the id, the schizophrenic cell, the schizo-molecules, their chains, and their jargons, there is a whole biology of schizophrenia. Molecular biology is itself schizophrenic as is microphysics. But inversely, schizophrenia, the theory of schizophrenia, is biological, biocultural, inasmuch as much as it examines the machinic connections of a molecular order, their distribution into maps of intensity on the giant molecule of the body without organs and the statistical accumulations that form and select the large aggregates.
1: I'll bring the first point about the jargon and um, the language. The jargon is something that is organic. Not organic in the sense of the biological, but the jargon is how uh, speech is... Be- not speech, but a form of local language is being developed by the interaction of people. But the language, it's its, it's structuration into something... Uh, more constant, but the jargon is always moving, always losing pieces and gaining
0: more pieces. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm sure Kent is wanting to bring up Slev here in his talk about uh, phonemes and graphemes, where they talk about literally the the vehicle of the sound that is used. That's very much what you're talking about, the organic part of language that is cultural and handed down and things like that, versus the literal content of the sign. It's a very different beast. It's fascinating when you start breaking them apart like that. This this part is very much talking about that uh, when they use the terms Markov chains, aleatory phenomena, partially dependent. Uh, a lot of this is through that sort of theory of language.
3: What do you guys make of this sentence? A man's most basic stratum, the id, the schizophrenic cell, the schizo-molecules, their chains, and their jargons.
2: So the the way that I would uh, kind of think about that is that, um, you know, you have molecules, but then there's these macromolecules in biology that can be very big. And they can be uh, chains of molecules uh, hooked together, and they fold up. And and a lot of times their folding is a very important uh, uh, part of their functioning. And so, when you when you think about it, you have the molecules, you have the chains of molecules that make up macromolecules, and then the jargons. I, I would say that those are like protocols, um, and 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 we know. Uh, I mean, after this book was written, you know, only recently, uh, there's the whole thing of the epigenome, where the where the DNA gets marked, and the expression of the genes is uh, either. Uh, enhanced or suppressed by the marking that uh, is based on uh, the environment.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, as I'm reading, it
3: seems like, so we usually like right, Freudian psychoanalysis, we're going to talk about the id and the unconscious of like a person, right, as like this sort of like desiring epicenter of, or something they're about, right, something kind of uh, comparable with like Zeus in Greek mythology uh, is right, Salyard discusses it but yeah I, I think I agree with you Kent because like right here they're saying like they're kind of invariant and say no the id is not so like individualistic right it's a stratum uh, for man or at least we think about it a stratum for man it's constituted by the schizophrenic cell the schizomolecules right chains and jargons there's all this stuff that goes into what we're calling an id which they've now kind of re-territorialized
1: and the subject would be the ooze of the id, because it's like it emerges, but like as a as a peripheral substance. You know, it's not it's not what gives uh, the individual. The individual is actually being given, but this jargon and connectivity that is within, but also something we don't have directly access. So basically, we are more like the processes that are happening within us than the way we think that we are
3: yeah Mm. to borrow a a phrase from foucault right in this case at least the id is like a glittering surface
5: yeah it's interesting how uh, they use language here uh, as a metaphor because in in the uh, realm of uh yams left its uh, language is uh, pure structure Uh, it's it's purely uh, formational and structural he doesn't talk about the content or the semantics of uh, language at all and uh, the jargon is more freely it is uh, not bound to this uh, formal structure of language it's uh, more like an experimentation like in the cell as well Um, there are certain rules and kind of habits uh, that a cell is operating by Um, also on a uh, molecular level um different elements, but uh, they are not bound to uh, to interact in a strict way. They can combine in different ways and by that uh, create new uh, properties uh, in this emergent aspect of uh, fluent
0: interactions. That, Thank you. Um, I will continue to read unless anyone has a, another comment. I think that kind of put a cap on it. All right. Uh, I'll probably... Pronounce this wrong. It's the first word. That's great. Uh, Zondi set out on this molecular path, discovering a genie unconscious that he contrasted with the Freudian individual unconscious, as well as Jung's collective unconscious. He often calls this genie, or genealogical unconscious, familial. And Zondi himself went on to study schizophrenia using familial... It's, it's genic... Of course it fucking is he often calls this genic or genealogical unconscious familial and Sandy himself went on to study schizophrenia using familial aggregates as his units of measure but the genic unconscious is familial only to a very small degree much less so than freud's unconscious since the diagnosis is carried out by comparing desire to the photographs of hermaphrodites assassins etc instead of reducing it as usual to the images of daddy mommy Finally, some relation to the outside, a whole alphabet, an entire axiomatic done with photos of mad people. This has to be tried, testing the need for paternal feeling against a series of portraits of assassins. It is no use saying this remains within the bounds of Oedipus. The truth is that it throws them open in a remarkable way. The hereditary genes of drives, therefore, play the role of simple stimuli that enter into variable combinations following vectors that serve an entire social historical field, an analysis of destiny. Uh, So, Genic, uh, not Genie, uh, anyone who's got the PDF like I do, uh, obviously the text switched a little bit around. And genetic makes a lot more sense. <laughs> uh, is anyone familiar with Lepote Zondé? Uh, Zondé's work, to read the footnote, was the first to establish a fundamental relationship between psychoanalysis and genetics. Uh, see also a recent attempt by Andre Green in terms of the advances made in molecular biology, repetition at instinct de mort.
3: I like this too, because once again, we're seeing the theme of like, this distinction of the individual and the collective here in a Freudian and Jungian sense respectively um, kind of crumbling away for them
0: alright I will continue to read unless anyone has another final point Cause I think we'll, we'll discuss Zonde tomorrow during the, uh, uh, the whole thing so it's going to be a hell of a review to say the least but I will uh, continue for now in point of fact, the truly molecular unconscious cannot define itself to genes as its units of reproduction. These units are still expressive and lead to molar formations. Molecular biology teaches us that it is only the DNA that is reproduced and not the proteins. Proteins are both products and units of production. They are what constitutes the unconscious as a cycle or as the autoproduction of the unconscious, the ultimate molecular elements in the arrangement of the desiring machines and the syntheses of desire. We have seen that through reproduction and its objects, defined familially or genetically, it is always the unconscious that produces itself in a cyclical orphan movement, a cycle of destiny where it always remains a subject. It is precisely on this point that the statutory independence of sexuality with regard to generation rests. Zondi senses this direction, according to which one must go beyond the molar to the molecular so acutely that he takes exception to all the statistical interpretations of what is wrongly called his test. What is more, he calls for going beyond contents towards the realm of functions, but he makes this advance, follows this direction only by going from aggregates or classes towards categories, of which he establishes a systematically closed list, categories that are still only expressive forms of existence that a subject is meant to choose and combine freely. For this reason, Zondi misses the internal or molecular elements of desire, the nature of their machinic choices, arrangements, and combinations. He also misses the real question of schizoanalysis. What drives your own desiring machines? What is their functioning? What are the syntheses into which they enter or operate? What use do you make of them? In all the transitions that extend from the molecular to the molar and inversely and that constitute the cycle whereby the unconscious remaining a subject produces and reproduces itself. Uh, The sentence I like of this is, uh, Zondi goes basically not far enough, and he basically places things into categories, uh, which is a systematically closed list, Uh, again, not the schizo way and instead they're saying actually we need to look even deeper and not place categories into things and instead talk about how things are produced how things are made what what does where desire is produced uh rather than saying what what desire gets produced into uh which i think is again a fight towards talking about the production of things rather than the result which i like
3: yeah and we're back to the theme of the formative too right because part of the part of the critique, as it seems to me, is that like Zondy is trying to lay out um, an idea of uh, formation, right, through through categories being chosen and then um, freely um, freely connected. But the, they seem to take kind of the inverse of that and say, no, no, it's not like it's not that the categories themselves are productive, right? You're taking what's what's happening and now you're kind of placing it in a category.
6: Can I just repeat what you just said?
3: yeah as i understand it like the categories themselves are not the form, are not uh, formative uh the categories are ways of dealing with what's already been formed right so it's almost like it's starting with the end as though it's the beginning instead of starting with you know wh- what happened and then trying to kind of trace it um
6: oh we, we will come back
0: to this tomorrow I, I think so. I think there's a lot to be discussed. Um, I would like to uh, continue on, though, because I think we're going to go over the two-hour mark. If anyone needs to, you can feel free to drop out. But I think we're going to be able to make it through the rest of this. Uh, but we're going to definitely go over our two hours. So uh, just letting you know ahead of time. Uh, to continue, we use the term libido to designate the specific energy of desiring machines and the transformations of this energy, Newman and voluptus are never desexualizations or sublimations. So that's what I was asking earlier. What is libido? There we go. It's the specific energy of desiring machines. Someone, whoever answered that, you nailed it. Thank you. And you also obviously read ahead in the chapter, so it's cheating. Considering the two ways in which the desiring machines must be viewed, what they have to do with the properly sexual energy is not immediately clear. Either they are assigned to the molecular order that is their own, or they are assigned to a molar order where they form the organic or social machines and invest organic or social surroundings. It is in fact difficult to present sexual energy as directly cosmic and intra-atomic, and at the same time as directly social historical. It would be futile to say that love has to do with proteins in society. This would amount to reviving yet once more the old attempts at liquidating Freudianism by substituting for the libido a vague cosmic energy capable of all of the metamorphoses or a kind of socialized energy capable of all the investments. Or would we do better to review Reich's final attempt involving a biogenesis that not without justification is qualified as a schizo mode of reasoning? It will be remembered that Wright concluded in favor of an intra-atomic cosmic energy, the orgone, generative of of an electrical flux and carrying submicroscopic particles, particles, the bions. This energy produced differences in potential or intensities distributed on the body, considered from a molecular viewpoint, and was associated with the mechanics of fluids in this same body considered from a molar viewpoint. What defined the libido as sexuality was therefore the association of the two modes of operation, mechanical and electrical, in a sequence with two poles, molar and molecular, mechanical tension, electrical charge, electrical discharge, mechanical relaxation. Reich thought he had thus overcome the alternative between mechanism and vitalism. Since these functions, mechanical and electrical, existed in matter in general, but were combined in a particular sequence within the living. And above all, he upheld the basic psychoanalytic truth, the supreme disavowal of which he was able to denounce in Freud, the independence of sexuality with regard to reproduction, the subordination of progressive or regressive reproduction to sexuality as a cycle. I would love someone to explain this one to me. Let me give it a shot. Uh, So at a basic level, what we know is that libido, the energy that drives desiring machines, the specific energy. does get turned into Newman or Voluptus, which is a sexual energy, right? Am I reading that right? Uh so
3: they're they're going back to chapter one, sections one, two, and three, where right, right, libido becomes Newman, right? So it transforms into the the inscriptive or um the uh, the second synthesis energy, and that transforms into Voluptus, which is the third synthesis energy. Right, so there's a flow of desiring production that's, um, that's true, the going through the three syntheses,
0: exactly. three sentences ultimately coming out as sexual voluptus, but it's never desexualizations or sublimations. Yeah, I lost it. That's all I had. Literally, just the first sentence, I guess. Um I'm going to read the footnote. Uh, for Reich, all of Reich's last studies, Biocosmia and Biogenetic, are summarized at the end of William Reich, The Functions of Orgasm. The primacy of sexuality over generation and reproduction comes to be based on the cycle of sexuality, mechanical tension, electrical charge, which leads to a division of the cell. But very early in his work, Reich approached Freud for having, reproached Freud for having abandoned the sexual position. It was not only the dissidents from Freud who abandoned this position, it was Freud himself in a certain fashion, The first time when he introduced the death instinct, and begins to speak of Eros instead of sexuality. Next, when he makes anxiety into the case of sexual repression, and no longer its results, and more generally, when he comes back to a traditional primacy of procreation over sexuality. Uh, here, Reich is obviously referring to Freud's Schopenhauerian or Weissmanian texts where sexuality comes under the sway of the species and the German. The German? No, that can't be right. Uh, for example, on narcissism and introduction. This seems like nonsense to me. I don't understand any of that sentence.
5: So
3: I think where we can kind of start here is they're talking about sexuality um, not in a biogenerative way. So, like, not in a not, not as though it's a question of the procreative or like the biologically procreative. And this is where we're starting to get an answer to, to like learning more about desiring production, right? Because one thing Varun and I uh, go back and forth on is like, how do we kind of understand this desiring production, right? Like what's making it possible and all that? Because like, it doesn't seem to be a first principle, And I think this is kind of what this paragraph is trying to get at is like, that. I think we're starting to see how they're, um, we're we're starting to see that desiring production doesn't quite look like a first principle.
0: Um, I'm going to make a huge highlighted mark around this entire paragraph for us to discuss in the review tomorrow. I'm going to have to do a little bit more reading. I'm not as familiar with Reich's general work uh, and I don't, spend a lot of time diving into sort of traditional psychoanalysts shit doesn't work for me uh, mentally so uh, i'm gonna probably look at you lou because for some reason i think you and maybe triad have a Oh, and triad just left good timing triad i uh, have a better grasp on a couple of these things yeah lou you've uh, answered some of this stuff before you seem to know this maybe i'm assuming too much
6: maybe I'm just good at simulating understanding. I don't know.
0: Well, fair. Um, I will continue reading, though. We have a getting close. I think we're going to be able to get through this in about a half hour, which is good. If the details of Reich's final theory are taken into consideration, we admit that it is simultaneously schizophrenic and paranoiac nature is no obstacle where we are concerned. On the contrary, we admit that any comparison of sexuality with cosmic phenomena, such as electrical storms, the blue color of the sky and the blue-gray of atmospheric haze, the blue of the orgone, St. Elmo's fire, the bluish formations of sunspot activity fluids and flows matter and particles in the end appear to us more adequate than the reduction of sexuality to the pitiful little familialist secret we think that lawrence and miller have a more accurate evaluation of sexuality than freud even from the viewpoint of the famous scientificity it is not the neurotic stretched out on the couch who speaks to us of love of its force and its despair but the mute stroll of the schizo Linz's outing in the mountains and under the stars, the immobile voyage in intensities on the body without organs. As to the whole of Rykian theory, it possesses the incomparable advantage of slowing, of showing the double pole of the libido as a molecular formation on the submicroscopic scale and as an investment of the molar formations on the scale of social and organic aggregates. All that is missing is the confirmations of common sense. Why in this sense why in what sense is this sexuality?
3: And this is one thing I've been curious about too, because like, as I understand Freud, even he says the, the, the libido is not purely sexual more than often it might be, but he's talking about it in terms of this like creative force. But this is one thing that I've been really interested in during anti-Oedipus is like how they're thinking about sexuality in this way.
6: I think um, there comes in again Nietzsche, right? And especially in Freud. So that libido has some resemblance of the will to power, which they take here and run with it. Um, bringing in Bergson, apparently. I don't know. But um, uh, I wanted to say something. I've forgotten what I wanted to say. I'll stop talking now.
0: Well, I actually think I'm going to there put a pen in this conversation because I think uh, what we should do uh, is I'm I don't think I'm going to be able to read through the rest of this and have a meaningful discussion because my brain is now trapped in the last three paragraphs, um, and I don't think I'm alone in that. There's a lot, You're lot. You're trapped into the text of the other. <laughs> yes, essentially. Um, I. I I think I'm stuck inside of the last couple and my brain is trying its best to. I'll have to reread these, do that. But I think um, our best bet is actually tomorrow for us to finish out this uh, chapter. We've got just a handful of paragraphs actually. Um, And I think that would probably be our best bet. And then we go straight into a review. So um, I think that will be our best format. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, pause here and uh, we will go ahead and uh, continue tomorrow And remember, uh, noon PST is American time. We have not done the fall forward, fall back, uh, uh, farm time change. Uh, So we have another week before we do that. So be ready for us to start apparently an hour earlier as far as the rest of the world is concerned. But uh, we will continue tomorrow at the same time. Thank all of you for joining and uh, I look forward to it. Thank you guys, girls, whatever else. It's good stuff dollars